Would you please stand with me today for the reading of the Holy Gospel? Our Gospel reading today is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, reading verse 37 to 43. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless, and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated for the reading of our epistle today. And let's pray again together as we approach God's word together. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and we acknowledge before you today that it is your word. And so we need your spirit to unfold it to us and to make its meaning plain. And so, Lord, with our Bibles upon our laps, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher and that you would instruct us in the ways of Christ. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, may they be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we begin today a series uh, that we'll be looking at throughout the summer called Grace and Truth, a study on the ministry of Jesus, that line from John chapter 1, grace and truth. In Jesus, we find grace unmerited mercy of God, and in Jesus we find the full revelation of truth, who God truly is and who we truly are, and what it means to be truly God's. And uh, I'm looking forward uh, over the next two months to be exploring Jesus' encounters with his people uh, throughout the Gospels, and I trust it will be a rich time together. Well, today we're looking at Jesus and the boy with the unclean uh, spirit, and it's really important today as I touched on briefly with the children, that we think of the context of the preceding verses in chapter 9 with the transfiguration. The disciples are overwhelmed by a vision of the glory of Jesus that they've never seen before. Hebrews 1 talks about this, where it talks about the the radiance of the glory of God in Jesus, that Jesus is the exact imprint The Greek word there is character, the the character of God, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And at this moment on that mountain, Jesus is is surrounded by these two great uh, representatives of the Old Testament. We see Moses and we see Elijah the great prophet, and uh, the disciples had been praying, or sleeping, I should say, while Jesus was praying. 
something that they'll do at the end of their uh, uh, of uh, Jesus' ministry in the Garden of Olives. And when they awake, they're immediately overwhelmed by the glory of what they see. And Peter never forgets it. He always remembers this moment. And much later he says, as I said to the children today, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were with him, he writes, on the holy mountain. We heard the Father, he writes. We heard him give honor, and we heard him give glory to the Son. But when this transfiguration happens, they're clearly stunned by it. And Luke tells us, if you see in verse 33, that Peter really doesn't know what he's talking about. All he can say is, Master, let us make some tents for Moses and for Elijah. I mean, he's beside himself. He can't process what's happening, and his mouth just starts to nervously ramble. Not only are the greatest of the Old Testament prophets right there in front of him, but we read in verse 32 that the disciples saw the glory of Christ. All of a sudden, they see him for who he is, the King Eternal immortal. They see the glory of the one who descended on the mountain with Moses, who went before them and behind them at the Red Sea. They see the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's there. He's right there in front of them, and Peter just starts to sputter. By the way, if ever you uh, doubt the full perversity of the human heart, it's not days later in verse 46 that the disciples start to argue about which one of them is the greatest. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I've got more value than you, they say. And they move from the vision of Christ's kingship and divine glory to a preoccupation with their own moral worth and their own merit, and they do it with apparent ease. And that's something that should give us pause today. Well, from this glory and this, this uh, glory of transfiguration, Jesus descends into the valley. And it's a wonderful picture that Luke gives us, I think, of the incarnation. From the glory of God in the heights down into the quagmire of suffering and evil and unbelief. And this is the mission of Jesus, and it continues to be the mission of Jesus even in, a, in his resurrected state. One of the most encouraging and comforting words for me is that word in the New Testament where Jesus speaks to Saul of Tarsus. After Saul had been brutalizing the people of God, Jesus speaks these words to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am the one, Saul, that you're persecuting. And Jesus continues to be in the midst of our afflictions. Heather and I recently watched the film Hacksaw Ridge, which was a moving experience on a number of levels. Desmond Doss, that American medic in World War II, uh, Okinawa. And uh, the fighting, the battle in this movie and in this war is particularly intense. In a matter of days on this Mound, the Americans lost two and a half thousand men. The, the Asians called it the reign of steel. They lost about twice as many men as the Americans did. And Doss, this young man, as historians tell us, unarmed and in the line of direct fire, ignoring orders to retreat, 
Instead, Doss painstakingly winched 75 injured men down a cliff to safety, only following himself when all others had been evacuated. What a picture of Christ, who descends from glory into the fog of war, and he remains not a far-off Christ, never a far-off Christ, but one who stays with us and still suffers with us now. Saul, it's me you're persecuting when you ravage and brutalize my church. And so if the context of the mountain at the beginning of nine was glory, the context of the valley into which he descends is trouble. And there are three types of trouble we see here uh, in, in chapter nine. We have on the one hand, the trouble and the suffering of the parent. The father is in terrible anguish over something he can't control. We read in verse 38 that he cries out to Jesus. He begs Jesus to look to his son. The father's helpless. And every parent, to some extent, can sympathize with this. Things that are out of our control. Things we can't fix. We look at our children and we want to help our children, but it's out of our power to do anything for them. And all of us, to some degree, in every area of our life, can experience and do experience the same kind of anxiety. Things we want to fix, but we can't. We look at our own lives and we know things need to change and the challenges are just too big. The second type of trouble is the son's anguish as a subject of demonic possession. Now, the modern temptation is to limit this experience to a form of epilepsy. Well, obviously, the gospel writers were gospel writers of the first century, uneducated. They didn't understand the workings of psychology and the human mind. And what they attributed to demon possession is clearly just epilepsy. Oh, those foolish gospel writers. Now, we don't want to say that epilepsy is demonic. Neither do we want to understate the pain and the suffering of those who suffer from epilepsy because it's something less than demonic. But clearly, in the text today, this is not just epilepsy. It may involve epilepsy, but here the physical symptoms of foaming at the mouth and falling on the ground and the convulsion are triggered by a demonic agent. That much is clear. And the trauma and the affliction of the child is clarified by the father's description in verse 39. This is what the demon does to my child. It shatters him. It's a very, very strong word in the Greek. It means to smash. It means to crush. And it's the same Greek word that Matthew uses when he describes what Jesus will not do. A bruised reed, he says, he will not break. It's the same verb, suntribo, he will not shatter it. But what Jesus won't do, the demonic will. And it's a picture of what happens to humanity in this evil world. Sin shatters us. Sin fragments us. Sin leaves us with shards of ourselves all over the ground. And the emphasis on this text or in this text is on the demonic in our world and the way the demonic shatters humanity. 
In the Gospels, we find the demonic in places we would least expect. We find demons at work in the sphere of innocence here. Who would expect a demon in a child? We find elsewhere demons in the presence of worship, right in the middle of the synagogue, the worship of Yahweh, and the demonic comes out. My brothers and sisters, we need to pay attention to this in the West. In the West, at least, one of the devil's cleverest tactics is to lead us into a kind of cultured agnosticism towards such things, a happy indifference towards the demonic. Oh, sure, verily it happened in the New Testament. Verily it was there, but really it has no place in the modern world. It's not biblical Christianity to think like that. The Bible clearly posits a very close relationship between evil things in this world and demonic activity. It may not be every evil thing. Humans, after all, are very good at authoring evil, but uh, demons do, according to Scripture, author suffering and tragedy and evil in this life. And we must not make light of these things. The second type of trouble. The third type of trouble we see today is the faithlessness and the corruption of the people that Jesus descends to. Jesus makes a very strong complaint in verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? And how long am I to bear with you? And we know that Jesus will be with us always, even to the end of the age, but the judgment here he makes is very strong. Now, clearly, Jesus is not making his judgment against the Father who asked for his help. The Father's faith, however feeble, is still faith. And you may remember in Mark's account, in Mark 9, as he renders this uh, pericope, the father humbly acknowledges the immaturity of his own faith. I believe Jesus, but help my unbelief, he says. And you really have to work quite hard, and you ought to get some kind of strange award if you make Jesus to be frustrated with this man. Clearly, it's not him. Far more likely, Jesus is frustrated with one, the crowd, who throughout the Gospels is always fickle and always looking for some neat trick from Jesus and always saying, oh, let's see what he will not do, or let's see how he will dazzle us this time. But more importantly here, his frustration is with his own band of disciples. Verse 40, the Father says, I begged your disciples to cast out this demon but they could not. Now, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 9 in the commissioning of the apostles, you'll read this, that Jesus gave to the disciples power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And yet now, these same disciples who've received the commissioning of Jesus find themselves bested by the power of darkness. And Jesus speaks now of the failure in terms of twistedness and of faithlessness, perversion, and unbelief. Somewhere, 
After being commissioned and empowered, the disciples had taken their eyes off God and off Jesus and had foolishly thought that the power was now in themselves. God doesn't wind us up, and he doesn't donate power to us so that we can use it independently of him as our own little enterprise. No, God gives us power to live the Christian life, and he gives us power to live the victorious life over evil in constant union, in communion with him, as we always recognize that the powers of God. And so we always must be connected to him. And this is why Jesus says to the disciples in Mark chapter 9, this kind of victory over this kind of darkness over these kind of demons that trouble the age, this kind of victory is only to be had by prayer and by fasting, that is, in constant communion and union with God. Because the power doesn't lie in you. It lies always in me. The power is never in us. The power is never in us. The power is always in Jesus Christ. And this is the grand secret of the Christian life. The secret is always to say and to affirm the power is not in me. It's in Christ alone. And this is exactly what Paul says in Galatians. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. It is not Paul that lives but it's Christ that lives in me and who lives through me. And there's a comprehensiveness to this. There's a grand comprehensiveness to Paul's statement, it is not I who rises to pray. It is Christ who prays in me. It is not I who loves my enemy. It is Christ who loves my enemy through me. It is not I who finishes the race. It is Christ who finishes the race in me. Psalm 62, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to who? Power always and only belongs to God. The power is always Christ's. It's never ours. And Jesus today will show us what that power looks like. By a simple command in verse 42, he undoes all of the shattering. He just undoes it all. He drives out the evil spirit. He cures the boy. And you'll notice the result in verse 43. As they see the power of Jesus, they all are astonished at the majesty of God. On the holy mountain, Peter writes, we were eyewitnesses of his Majesty, And now Jesus takes the majesty from the mountain. He takes the, mount, the majesty from the top, his Father's glory, and Jesus brings it into the valley to heal and to restore and to give life. And I want you always to remember this image, Jesus bringing his Father's glory into the depths. This is the cross, my brothers and sisters. This is the lowest of places where Jesus sinks into our shame and he sinks into our guilt and he sinks into our extreme helplessness where he receives on his head the wrath of God that was our due. And in these depths, in this valley of humiliation, 
He brings God's glory to us. The goodness of God, the wholeness of God, the health of God, the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God. Jesus brings the glory from the heights to us, and he heals us, and he restores us even as he did this little boy. And so today, my brothers and sisters, whatever it is that's dogging you, and surely things are dogging you, the answer is only in Jesus. He has purchased for you the wholeness of God. All things that pertain to life and to godliness and the glory of God, all things are yours through Jesus. And his name is powerful. And so I invite you today as we approach this Holy Supper, I invite you in the midst of whatever it is you're going through to call upon the name of Jesus, to call upon the name of the Lord today and to say to Jesus, my poverty for your riches, my sin for your righteousness, my unbelief for your faithfulness, my defeat, Lord Jesus, for your victory, my captivity for your freedom. Give yourself to Jesus today and ask of him everything that he has to give to you today, and he will give it to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.